Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So many people spend their entire lives trying to make other people happy. And if you can decide what really makes you happy, then you can you can design a life around that that looks a little different to other people, but can be inspiring. It can be, you know, it can drive you in, in ways that, that you haven't had before. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Welcome to another episode of the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. I'm your host. My name is Tyler Martin. I created this show to help business owners and entrepreneurs scale and grow their business. I truly believe if you scale your business correctly, you can build the business you dreamed about. My guest today has reached a dream that many business owners never reach. That is the dream of freedom from his business. I'd like to introduce you to Todd Randall. Todd has the freedom to live life on his terms because he has reached the freedom point from his business. Todd has started eight businesses in a variety of industries. Not only did he successfully exit three of those businesses, but he still manages four of them remotely. Generating $6 million annually in revenue, Todd's business enterprise is built on freedom more than money, which is the ultimate secret to his success. Todd realized that running a business can cost you your health if you let it. That's why he's so passionate about helping entrepreneurs turn their lives around. In this episode, we talk about the importance of trust for your business success, how to delegate tasks properly and focus on your biggest strengths, why you need to teach your team to make good decisions, and finally, the power of setting goals for yourself and yourself only. The topic of freedom from your business is one of the most requested items that I have. I'm sure you'll get a lot out of this episode. Let's chat with Todd now. Hey, Todd, thanks for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How are you doing today? Thanks. Hey, great to be here. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, appreciate having you. So where I'd love to just start is a little bit about your background, because as I understand it, like a bunch of business experience, running businesses, selling businesses, love to just start what you're doing, what got you here today. Yeah, I'm a funny one because I'm not a traditional entrepreneur, right? I didn't have some big fancy idea or invention. I just decided I wanted to be a business person. And so I kind of started. It's a little bit like wanting to be a marathoner, never having been a runner before. You know, the first thing, you know, you can advise someone to do that is to go out and start running. And that's the way I did it. So I was, I was a clinician first, always knew I wanted to be in business. So I worked for four or five years, got my first management job and then went to corporate. And so I was a corporate beer cat for 20 years or so. And in that business, I was a specialist in uh, medication automation. So robots, ATMs that dispense drugs, hospital technology, software systems all over the world. Extremely satisfying. I loved it very much, but I didn't love the structural, like the work, you know, the need for politics, the hours, the grinding. Eventually, I just felt like I had better value somewhere else. 
And it had, you know, lots of us do have a revelation at some point and whatever my life crisis was <laughs> and decided that I just really would prefer to be on my own. And I was confident enough to try it. And so I opened up my first business around 15 years ago. Like I said, I didn't have a great idea. I took someone else's idea and asked him if I could build one like it. And I did. And from there, you know, I just kind of sorted out what made that business successful and then did it again and did it again and tried something else. Next thing you know, I've got seven or eight businesses. Some of them exited, some of them failed, some of them succeeded, started, you know, coaching people on how to run their businesses. And here I am today. Yeah, that's very cool. Now, in our first discussion, we talked about our planning discussion. We talked about how you approach problem solving and you had mentioned it from your pharmacy background that you approach it like a scientist. Yeah. Can you kind of explain as, as problems hit you and they always do in the business world, small business world, how do you approach problem solving as a scientist? That's fair. I think that before I was a small business owner, I had this impression that there was some magic to it, right? That people had better intuition than me or people were more creative than I was. And then I started meeting people who ran businesses and especially like the executives of my company, it was a $300 billion company. This is no small entity, right? Wow. And when I was running people running these very large divisions, Visions, I found that they were people, you know, smart people in some cases. And some of them had interesting and cool talents, but they were mostly people who had learned a skill and then practiced it and became better at it. And so, in my division in particular, for whatever reason, we had a team full of, you know, people with really eccentric backgrounds a professional softball player, a chemist, an attorney. I was a pharmacist, an entrepreneur, and we were all on a sales team. And uh, I just learned through that team, watching them uh, pursue their goals, that the people who did well in that particular business unit were people who broke down you know, a task into its distinct parts and practiced them and became better at it. And so I took that with me into pursuing a business because I didn't know how to run a business. I was helping other people run theirs. And I thought, well, you know, the way to run a marathon is to start running. And I just kept beating my head in, into the wall and and trying to figure it out from there. Wow. So would you say you're methodical then when you approach? I mean, when I think scientists, I think kind of very, very methodical. Like, is that your approach? So yeah, I could have been more practical when I answered that question, couldn't I? The thing about entrepreneurship and businesses is there are a series of tasks that one must be good at. Yeah. And when I was in corporate, I was always really surprised. Like I was a really good salesperson in, in one role and I kept being passed over for the manager of that business unit. And it bothered me mm. because I thought I'm one of the best salespeople in this $300 million or billion dollar organization. I don't know why I'm being passed over until I realized that the skills of that position were different than the skills that I was practicing. And the way I finally learned it is I took on a mentee, I became a mentor and I helped them be really good at what I do. And then they were able to take over my territory. And I learned two lessons in that. One is that this is a corporate thing, right? Is it's really hard for someone to promote you unless they know that whatever job you're doing isn't going to fall to pieces, right? And so because I mentored someone that could come into my territory and kind of take it over, it kind of opened me up for the, for the next task. And the next thing I learned is that, hey, managers need different, require different skills than salespeople, right? right. And so that's the, that's the lesson that I took into entrepreneurship is when I got out there and I realized the first time I needed funding, I needed financing to, to scale and I didn't know how to do it. So I just called somebody who'd done it before and said, how did you do it? And just assumed that, you know, that was one way. I called someone else and asked them how they did it. And I learned that they did it a different way. And it became evident to me that this was the same situation, right? Oh, people who finance businesses 
have a skill that I don't, there's no reason why I can't learn it. Right. And I would do research. I would always try to find someone who did it before me and learn their lessons and then just start. You have to start and then learn from there, I think. Yeah, very cool. Now, I think you've been in what? Is it eight different? I know eight different businesses. Has it been eight different industries too? Yeah. So I was in healthcare first and then healthcare technology and then wellness. I had a a few spas. Wow. um, And then gyms, a few fitness studios, uh, construction. And the last big project I did was a construction wholesale business which is a combination of several of the types of businesses. And I've consulted on all of those. Wow. Which one of those industries, what would you say is like the hardest to run profitably, to penetrate and, and scale a company? I found the this, this spas to be a great learning ground for me. They were the first businesses that I had. And the reason that they were difficult is because they were so staff intensive, right? I had managed teams before and I had managed relatively large teams before, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, that was a, a, an extremely staff intensive business, right? The staff just required a lot of me. I needed to spend a lot of time with staff. And uh, I really recommend to people, if you're going to run a business with lots of staff in it, have great operators with you because it's really easy to get bogged down on those details. The thing is they're, they're important. Like your people, there's nothing more important than the people in your business. And so if you have a, a business with lots of folks and you are the one administering that care, then it, it doesn't free you up to do the other things. And that's a mistake that I made a few times before I learned my lesson to get good operators in there to help me manage the staff and drive culture so that I could focus focus on strategic stuff. Right. And then on that note, you manage, is it four businesses right now? They're all remote, right? Just four now. Yeah. I have uh, one of the gyms left, a gym that I really love. It's a, it's a super successful one. And I have the construction wholesale business. I have a fencing install business, a small construction install team, and I do coaching consulting. Very cool. And I know they're all remote. You've mentioned to me. All remote. How do you do that? Like, How do you run these businesses and you're completely... Offsite. I mean, it's awesome. How do you do it? Yeah. So this gets back into being a scientist, right? Because I was bad at this <laughs> at the beginning. I really was. So many entrepreneurs were, oh my gosh, I would go to networking groups or you know, chat with my friends who are business owners. And we were all in the same bucket, bragging to each other about how many hours a week you work. Um, and that only works for so long because yeah. you know, one does fatigue after a time. You know, When you're 30 years old and you're running your own business, there's such an enthusiasm and a, it's intoxicating. I mean, there's a pride that comes with it. There is a sense of urgency that comes with it. There's a fear and a panic that comes with it. And it drives you to work hours. And you don't realize it's not sustainable until you reach the end of your limits. I I find that over and over and over again. I wish I was that guy who could take advice and say, hey, Todd, you should really make time for yourself. (laughs) I wasn't that guy. I would beat my head into the wall until I passed out and then realize, oh, there's a lesson to be learned, right? Yeah. Okay. So the question, the question was, how do you run remote businesses? I think the key for me was learning how to delegate properly. Mm. And like I mentioned, this is not something I was good at. And I didn't realize I was bad at it until it, catastrophes happened, right? I was, my staff, once I had one, once I had about four businesses running, I had pretty good managers in all four of them. And they would from time to time call me and say, Hey, Todd, we need such and such. And I had a list of a a million things that only I could do because I'm the owner. Right. And the fact of the matter is that that list probably didn't need to have a million things on it. But I was convinced at the time that there were some things that only I could decide. It required the judgment of the owner. I don't know if you've had this revelation yourself. <laughs> and my staff would would ask me to do something urgently. And because I couldn't get to all of them, 
the businesses were, you know, performing poorly as a result of me not being able to make all the decisions. And finally, I had my most experienced manager, God bless her, uh, Carolina. Carolina uh, was someone that I really was starting to trust. She had managed a lot for me. She'd worked for me for a long time and we really got along well. And she came to me and said, Todd, you know, these are decisions that you don't need to make. I'd be glad to help you with them, but I don't want to make decisions in a way that you, that wouldn't be consistent. Let's come up with a process. And from there, we worked hard at it. It took us a couple of years and we failed a lot, but we came up with a little five point process that worked for us. And in the end, it became so successful that she started managing multiple businesses for me wow. and training that process to the managers who ran them. And it, it freed me up so much. It's hard, to, it's hard to grasp this until you're there. But I was spending time on, on things that were taking me away from tasks that could double and triple my business. Yeah. It was just uh, taking money out of your pocket, basically. What are those? Do you mind sharing what that five-point plan looks like? Do you remember? If I can remember all five now, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We'll take three out of five. How's that? <laughs> That's great. No, they were important principles. And we failed at all of these before we got it right. The first sure. one was trust. We found that, I found first, I guess, that it's really hard to delegate people without some sense of trust because you have to walk away sometimes for a couple of days or a week if you're really going to delegate important tasks. And so you have to hire with that in mind. Like there are skills that you can use to hire people that you can trust. I'll bet if you ask your listeners how many character or trust questions they have in their interviews, that the answer would be zero sometimes. Probably true. You're probably right. Yeah. And thinking, you know, can you build a spreadsheet? Have you managed teams? Are you an expert in infrastructure or textiles or whatever your business is, right? And I found after a while that the most important questions I was asking for an interview were character questions. You know, hey, Barbara, tell me about a time where you're working for a company and someone put you up to a task that you just didn't feel comfortable with. How did you handle that? Did you have an ethical concern? Was it a moral concern? Did you feel unsafe? Tell me, like, how did, how did you deal with that, right? And you can learn a lot about someone with those kind of questions and hire people that you have an alignment with as it relates to trust. So I think trust is a really important thing. And then you can nurture trust and you can communicate in a way that that values trust. If you're going to delegate really important tasks, like depositing money in a bank or hiring or, you know, important tasks like that, you have to, you have to see eye to eye with that manager. So first one is trust. Yeah, that's huge. Huge. Right? Yeah. The second was patience. And this wasn't my idea. <laughs> this was Carolina's. <laughs> she said, all right, like, I can't just have you send me an email or a voicemail saying from now on, you're going to handle this task. That's not delegating because I don't know enough about what you want. And I haven't practiced the skills and blah, blah, blah. So, so in the end, we decided that patience was a real virtue as it relates to delegating. And the way that we defined patience is I needed to expect, I needed to set my expectation that I would redo the work for every single thing that I passed on, that I would have the expectation and I would schedule time that I would have to redo their work the first time or two that they did it. And that seems, that seems like a lot. When I've, when I've coached other business owners on this, I think at first, that's a hard pill to swallow. But the fact of the matter is, if I have someone, like if I do a bunch of monthly reporting myself, eventually I come up with a nomenclature that means something to me that I can search by and, and trends and graphs and stuff that really strike me when I read them, right? And if the person I delegate that task to doesn't do it exactly the way that I want to, it becomes less valuable and I end up redoing it anyways, right? Right. So patience, right? You have to build it once, help them walk through it, 
build it again, help them walk through it. They have to, the net result is they have to do it as better as well or better than you can, or the task isn't fully delegated. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. So we got patience, trust. I know you may not know all five, so I don't want to pound you on this, but if you, you got them, that's great. The third one is um, we needed a point of an escalation point, an escalation threshold, I think we called it. Mm-hmm. And so by this, um, I mean, you know, there were times where I was distracted for a week, sometimes working on a court case or on an important, you know, renegotiation or something. And a week was a long time to be out of pocket. And so what my managers wanted to know is they said, Todd, give us a list of five things that we know you want us to call you about so that we don't have to feel guilty for picking up the phone and getting you out of a meeting or off off a plane or whatever. To give examples of those, if the till, like I ran retail businesses, right? So if the till was off by more than X dollars, that's an emergency. And it's not just an emergency because there could be money lost. It's because we're setting a tone. We're setting a precedent. We want to make sure and catch things early. If someone shows up to one of the businesses with a, with a clipboard, I want to know about that right then. Stop what you're doing before you let them in the back. Call me. Because we had, we had a little bit of... I don't know if other industries deal with this a lot. But in retail, there were fraudulent auditors coming in all the time because they just wanted to study what made us tick. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to find things wrong that they could sue us for. Um, And that's just a sad reality of doing business with a high staff content in California, which is a quite litigious state. So if someone came with a clipboard, I wanted to know right away or they weren't allowed in the building. Sure. A couple examples of critical escalation. If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens, and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business. Um, and that's just a sad reality of doing business with a high staff content in California, which is a quite litigious state. So if someone came with a clipboard, I wanted to know right away or they weren't allowed in the building. A couple examples of critical escalation. Yeah, I like that. I've never really heard that. I mean, it, it's basically authority permission levels is what it sounds like. Yeah. But it's a little yeah. bit broader in terms of, hey, these are these are escalation items. I think that's a really cool way to approach that. Yeah, you have to encourage the communication, at, especially at the beginning. Like I always tell them, micromanage the delegation in the beginning. Micromanage it. Like really be all over the details for a couple of reasons. One is because, like I said, if it's not done as well as you would have done it, then you still it's still taking up your headspace. You're still worrying about it. And your job is to clear your head so you can work on things that can double and triple the business, right? And these whole 1% gain or loss things are cluttering your mind. So that's the first reason. And the second reason that you want... Actually, I lost my train of thought. That's okay. We were talking about... So we got trust, patience, escalation clause... There's, there were five things. Do you happen to even know four, four or five? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's just move on to the fourth one then. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. The fourth one was to, at some point, you have to move from micromanagement to a coaching style. Yeah, that's a good one. This is not a skill that many managers have until they start managing managers, right? This is the one big skill I developed when I went from managing one team to managing managers, right? Is you have to be able to coach in a way that let people fail 
right? And there are a handful of skills to that. Of course, I'm sure you guys talk about that um, on your podcast all the time. Sure, sure. But that's a mindset as much as anything, and it takes an incredible patience sometimes to hold your tongue and let somebody make a mistake and then walk through it. Okay. So I get the sense that that didn't have the impact you wanted it to tell me why, what, you know, what, what can we do better next time and let them have come up with the idea because then they'll learn it. They just learn it so much more thoroughly. Right. Right. In the end. And the fifth one was uh, build redundancies. Ah, yeah. I like that. This is the thing that keeps people from delegating in my opinion, right? Just the fear why do you think that is? Because there's no check and balance and they're afraid something will go wrong? No, I don't think so. I think it's the fear that they'll have to start over again. Like let's uh, say for instance that, uh, what was one thing I wanted to delegate? The hiring of key staff people. I really wanted to be involved in this because staff was so important to me. Like I'm a culture warrior, right? <laughs> and so I had you know managers that I thought had a talent for this and we would work on it and we would practice trust and patience and escalation points and stuff. But in the end, if I only had one person in all my companies that was a good hirer, Mm. then if that person has a maternity leave or if they get called into the service for for whatever reason, or if they have a healthcare concern, then I'm really stuck. And I'm on a plane all the time. I'm in a plane in each of these organizations. It takes me away from everything I want. And so for, for the really key tasks, I always have a second source somewhere. It's maybe sometimes they're an understudy and that's okay. Right. Because it still reduces the time that it takes me out of it, you know, by a factor of 10. Like, let's say, for instance, that that person does have some kind of healthcare emergency and they're out for two months. If I have someone that at least knows the passwords and at least knows some of the parse process and has been sitting in in some of the interviews, I can go out and spend a couple of weeks and do, you know, a bunch of, you know, one on one time with them and offload 30 or 40% of the task. And it's not an emergency. It, what it moves from is it moves from a catastrophe to an urgent or important problem. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Now you just used the term culture warrior. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's your thought process around having a great culture? Like what's important to you in, in having a good culture within your your company and your teams? Yeah. Trust is the most important one for me. Okay. Trust is the most important one. Loyalty is the second most important. I just um I don't want to sound like the mafia, you know, but <laughs> when you're far away the people are making judgment calls for you all the time. And if your interests are in alignment, things can go extraordinarily well. They may not go exactly the direction that you would have have wanted, but they can still have a positive impact every single day because they know you well enough to make judgment calls on your behalf. So I think trust is the most important one. I spend a lot of time with my key staff when I go, just making sure that they're okay. I think compassion, I always say to my staff, lead with compassion. Start from there. I had retail businesses, like I said. So if a customer calls and they're upset, choose to believe them at first, right? Sure. In some cases, people may be trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Does it really matter? Like what's what's the total loss of that? Just believe people because it builds a culture that people feel like they can call and talk to you. It's like, oh, remember that time that I left my glasses in your fitness studio and I accused you of, of your staff of stealing them. And you were so nice to me and you took time off on a Sunday and went and looked for them. And you believed me. You believed that someone may have stolen them. And you you walked in, you supported your staff, of course, but you believed that they might be there and you double-checked the cameras and everything. And then I found them in my car. And the fact that you believed me is something that I carry with me as a customer. 
right? And I, I find that our clients really value that kind of interaction. And so I started using it with my staff too. If they come to me with a problem, I just lead with compassion first. And even if we don't agree on the outcome, they love the fact that we're working on it together as opposed to having to butt heads on things. Yeah. Gosh, I love that. That's really powerful, that whole emotionally intelligent type approach. Because we're so ingrained yeah. to always think the worst of people to, you know, when as soon as they bring something up, oh, they're trying to game the system or whatever. So it's, it's good yeah. to flip that script. That can be extremely counterproductive. I've, yeah. I've coached many business owners through that mindset that they're constantly trying to cover their back. And one way to get out of it, by the way, I hope we have another minute to cover this topic. Yeah, yeah. I think it's please, important. Please. One way to get out of this is just to, is to build worst case scenarios. Okay. So your staff might be walking away with whatever towels or pennies or scissors or what have you. What's the worst that can happen? Great. Let's calculate that. Now, what's the best that can happen if we just believe and trust and show compassion for all of our staff? And then take the responsibility on our own to build controls and audits and monitors and stuff where we just make it you know, harder for, for that kind of thing to happen and forget the $50 that we lost you know, due to theft or what have you. Yeah, I love that worst case type mentality. What's the worst case of having 10 pens stolen? <laughs> you know, it's Put bookends like, around it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I love it. So, hey, one thing I want to talk about. So you were pretty candid about you've had several businesses. You've, you've been pretty successful. You've sold some. And yet you still keep going <laughs> and you still keep pushing away. And yeah. in our planning conversation, you talked about your BHAG and that's a just a giant, audacious goal. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that sounds like that's fueled you. That's your why, if you you will in terms of you know where where you've gotten this remote teams and doing what you're doing did. that you love. Yeah, yeah, it did. They, I think a lot of people are driven by things that are pretty obvious and explicit to them. Uh, for me, it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't have children at the time that I started my businesses. I didn't have a traumatic event that I was trying to you know overcome or transform from. But I, I still wasn't happy. Like there was a time where I was making lots of money and working hard and I had a fancy title and it wasn't satisfying me for whatever reason. So it came from a place of dissatisfaction that decided, look, maybe it's time to be honest with myself about what, what I want, right? I've already have a cool job. I already have a good income. Those are things that I thought I wanted. Now that I'm here, that doesn't seem to be everything. So what is it that I really want? And what I really wanted is I wanted, <laughs> I, I wanted to ride horses and travel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those are things that really meant something to me. And if you dig into why it made sense, it sounds kind of superficial um, on the front because the way I ride horses is I, I play polo, uh, which also, you know, most, it's a very novel thing. Most people don't understand. It sounds ostentatious like yachting or, or croquet, but I grew up in the country and then I spent all of my adult life in big cities, you know, San Francisco, New York, London, Paris, et cetera. And I just really missed the country. And I didn't want to just ride horses in a circle. I wanted to do something with them. And a friend of mine played polo and it was extremely athletic and it required lots of skill. And I just fell in love with it. And I thought, well, that's a hard sport to do if you don't have horses. <laughs> and it's a hard sport to do if you don't have land. And even if you come in, you know, there are lots of ways to play polo course. You don't have to be a billionaire to play, but it's not a cheap sport either. Mm. And so I decided, okay, if life's going to be fun for me, Let's decide what that fun looks like. Let's, I want to play polo in Argentina once a year. Not everyone gets to do that. And that would really make me happy. And so I set my businesses up in such a way that I could do that, even if I made less profit. And that's how you know when you have a goal that, that's for you right. and not somebody else, right? Is if you've actually sacrificed something to get it. Yeah, I like that. I want Saturday mornings off and I am going to 
you know, have fewer customers as a result. And if that's okay with you, then you know you've you've hit something that really matters to you, right? Yeah, that's really cool. I think that's where a lot of people struggle too. They assume when you're setting up these goals and you have a business in particular that you have to kind of keep, it's got to be around growth, more profit, more this, more that. And it doesn't. It's possible, but there might be exchange for that. You may have to give up something for something else. And it's cool that you value what what's going to make you happy, whether that be polo or your Saturday mornings or whatever. That's a pretty cool way to approach it. Yeah. The difference between corporate and small business is quite note, noteworthy in that case, because at corporate, it's always quarter over quarter growth. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to small business owners, that is not the way they think. Right. It is not. They think about cash flow and they think about exit. Right. And corporate uh, executives, that's they're not incented to think that way. Right. That's it's not in alignment with what management wants from them. It's short-term corporate, it's all short-term gain. How can I get the short-term gain? You know, you're right. Business, small business, we're always thinking about cash flow and how do we, you know, what's our next move? How are we going to replace staff? All those fun items. It's just a, it's a different world. I, I love how you think though. I really think uh, and it's cool that you're executing on it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I am. Yeah. In fact, I uh, just we went to Morocco a couple of weeks ago and played play polo for a week with a handful of friends in a place that I could practice language. And it was interesting and new and the food was different and it was so stimulating and interesting. And that'll fuel me for another six months. Like just going on one trip, it fires me up so much that when I'm home, you know, I'm working really hard to set up the businesses so that I can go and do it again. So I got one fun question and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Yeah, sure. Do you have, uh, I always like to ask guests if they have either a business tip or a life tip that you can share with us that'll make our lives better. Does anything come off the top of your head? Yeah, I think we just covered one that we can we can riff off of a little bit. And that is make the goals for you. Yeah. There is some point, if you are in a place where you're dissatisfied or if you have a point of trauma in your life, a divorce or a healthcare concern or something like that, these are super useful times to look inside and say, why? Why does this make me so unhappy to be without one person? Was that the one person for me? Or why am I so unhappy to lose mobility? What is it about the mobility that made me happy or whatever? And dig into what makes you drive. So many people spend their entire lives trying to make other people happy. And if you can decide what really makes you happy, then you can, you can design a life around that. that looks a little different to other people, but can be inspiring. It can be, you know, it can drive you in, in ways that, that you haven't had before. Yeah, that's great. So if people want to learn a little bit more about you, you're, you have uh, on social media, Facebook, uh, dot yeah. com forward slash beach view coaching. Can you tell us a little beach bit? What is, yeah. What is beach view coaching? Can you share a little bit what you're doing in that area? Yeah. You know, it drives me crazy. Like I said before that I was one of those people that, um, I wasn't good at taking advice from others. <laughs> and then I got myself into places where I was really in over my head and I needed advice. And so I learned the hard way uh, to go get help when, when you need it. And so one of the great satisfiers for me right now that I, that I have, you know, all these businesses is, is trying to find people that are starting their first or second or third business and giving them the tools to work through these, some of these problems without bashing their head against the wall like I, like I did, right? And so my goal is to you know, help them have a bloody free you know, environment getting from one business to the next. So I do uh, consulting and coaching for small business owners, uh, you know, mindset and practical advice, like, you know, negotiations and leases and financing and, and especially staffing. I find that uh, a lot of entrepreneurs who have a good idea in starting a business um, are real fired up about product or sales. And once they start building a team, 
that's the point of overwhelm for them. And I can really help them work through that. And so the way that I work with those people mostly is to, to use social media as a, as a form of engaging and private consults. So facebook.com forward slash Beastry Coaching is the best way to find me. Very cool. Awesome. Well, it's great having you on the show. I'll put that link and I have a couple of your links, your LinkedIn link. I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, super. Thanks. Yeah. I love talking with you. I wish you the best of luck. Have fun uh, with Polo. I, I can't even imagine how much fun that must be going all around the world, uh, you know, playing playing competitively and just doing what you enjoy doing. Just imagine playing golf um, on a surfboard during an earthquake. <laughs> I have enough <laughs> problem with golf. I I don't need any additional elements to it. <laughs> okay. Hey, have yeah, a great one. Thanks so much. Nice talking to you. Thanks. You too. That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.